Welcome to the Paradox PT podcast, where we discuss all things physical therapy, rehabilitation, and clinical practice. I'm your host, Leo Falzon. Today, I'm speaking with my colleague and friend, Adrian Fliss, about patellofemoral pain. Adrian is a resident physiotherapist who graduated from the University of Waterloo with a BSc in kinesiology in 2018, and from the University of Toronto with an MSc in physical therapy in 2020. He currently provides care out of two private practice orthopedic clinics in the GTA, Shedden Physiotherapy and Sports Clinic in Oakville, and Umana Health in Etobicoke. My favorite thing about Adrian is that he brings a sense of humility and an open mind to every topic. He's extraordinarily smart and skeptical, but he's equally humble and curious, which makes him a great conversation partner when it comes to anything rehab related. Today we explore the ins and outs of patellofemoral pain, a super prevalent condition that we've both had our struggles with treating in clinic. We try to be as granular and specific as possible with respect to our clinical reasoning and decision-making frameworks around this condition so that whether you're a new grad or a student, hopefully there's something in this conversation that can help you level up your patient care. Without any further ado, here is my conversation with Adrian Fliss about all things patellofemoral pain. Adrian Fliss, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, I thought we'd start off by, maybe I would just ask you what you hope to get out of this conversation. What do you want to have accomplished by the time we're done talking about patellofemoral pain? Yeah, first podcast. This is uh, a little bit nerve-wracking, but let's try not to act like experts. <laughs> um, so what I want to get out of this um, out of this conversation is just a clear idea of how to treat this subgroup of people. In my experience, and the reason why we thought to have this podcast is because I've had difficulty in the last year treating this subset of population. And I think we kind of mentioned that you did it as well. So Within the week of the idea sparking up that we'd have this conversation today, um, I've learned a lot, which is great. It shows you, you know, like how much you can learn within within a time frame if you really put your mind to it. Um, but I think talking about it and kind of having a nice framework for treating this population might make it a little bit less scary. Because right now, the way that I'm thinking about patellofemoral pain is when a patient comes into me and I'm seeing those signs of patellofemoral pain coming in, there's a little bit of me that thinks that, okay, how are we actually going to get this patient better? The research doesn't really favor a good uh, prognosis. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, and I've, I've definitely felt the same way over the last year. They're tricky and they're not like these quick fix uh patients and uh hopefully today i think a for me success would be diving into the details a little bit because there's a lot of materials out there online which summarize the research and go into what the rcts say and what the prospective data say and we will touch on a lot of that but i think kind of getting into what it actually looks like in practice with patients is the 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 gap that I, I want to bridge here and just have a better, a better, like, like a resource we can look back on to say, okay, here, here are some foundational pieces of, um, of, of knowledge around patellofemoral pain that I can hang my hat on. So, yeah. And hopefully the knowledge that we talk about today is grounded well enough that there's not going to be major changes within it in the next 20 years, for example. Um, whereas if you kind of focus on the tiny details of what's, established in the research that stuff can change you know week by week month by month so frameworks 
are better than anything, I would say, for any sort of condition. I think it's a good thought experiment just to do this for any area that you find a little bit of trouble with. Yeah, totally. Uh, so let's dive right in. I thought we would start off by defining patellofemoral pain. So for, for anybody who's not aware, what is patellofemoral pain? So patellofemoral pain, the big thing that a lot of uh, these studies try to establish is that it's a diagnosis, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So make sure that you're not just diagnosing patellofemoral pain with just the subjective criteria right there. So overall, it's kneecap pain. Like it's, it's a fancy Latin term for telling us that there's some pain coming around, coming around the knee joint. Mm -hmm. um, and okay, so you said it's a diagnosis of exclusion. What are maybe like some of the major conditions that you'd want to be ruling out? Because I think it's a it's a key point with a lot of our diagnoses, like non-specific low back pain or rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Um, we're better at ruling things out than we are at ruling things in. So we kind of have we're good at, at saying it's not X, Y, and Z. So therefore, it's likely you know <laughs> this. Yeah. Um, so what are the things with anterior knee pain that could masquerade as patellofemoral pain, or or could um, that you're trying to exclude? So the classics, you know, that you learn from PT school is just making sure that everything is intact within like the ligamentous structure of the knee. So thinking about those special tests that, you know, you have to memorize from day one, you know, MCL, LCL, um, ACL, meniscus, those are the big ones, right? And then once you've kind of gone down that, um, uh, gone down that pathway of um, you want to look down, you you also want to look at um, like patellar tendinopathy, you know, mm -hmm. the tendinopathy as, as well, like the, the quads would be a good example. Um, and then like within those special populations or like those weird cases, you know, that you'll see maybe like once every six months, like the Osgood Schlatters, um, any like loose bodies within the knee, uh, the scary ones like, you know, osteosarcomas, like yeah. um, obviously some of these are a little bit easier to rule in or rule out just based on the conversation that you have with that patient. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for your mind to think, oh, I know exactly what this is. But because of that criteria of diagnosis uh, of exclusion, we should try to do a good job making sure that we're not treating the wrong thing. Because yeah. this is the thing that we've been seeing, right? Like. Some of the people that don't get better with patellofemoral pain might not have patellofemoral pain, right? Yeah, and, and thus might not respond well to interventions that are tailored to patellofemoral pain. Yeah. So I guess for me, just to kind of build on that a little bit, some of the subjective points that are key to, to, um, to clarify in your history are if it was a traumatic injury, you know, you're likely going down more of the path of your ligamentous structures or meniscal structures. Yeah. Very unlikely to have like a one traumatic incident that's patellofemoral pain, mm -hmm. even though that I guess can happen in the odd case. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, with tendinopathy, maybe it's worth briefly just describing like a few factors. And for anybody who wants to dive deeper into this, Jake Tura has a couple great episodes with Jill Cook, who's like world leading patellotendinopathy researcher on the Jacked Athlete podcast where she talks about really how to differentiate between the two. But the few points that I would uh, hang my hat on are one, with patellofemoral pain, it's often poorly localized and broad. It's a diffuse, so they'll kind of point 
they'll put their hand on their knee and say it hurts here, as opposed to with patellar tendinopathy, they will point to their patellar tendon and they will say it hurts there. Yeah, so kind of that pinpoint pattern versus more of a diffuse localized. That's a that's a big one for me. Yeah, and as as they load that tendon, the pain stays there. Whereas in, in PFP, often the pain will kind of travel and spread. And, yeah. And, yeah so. and, and with tendinopathy, right, we know that those slow, heavy, resisted loads might actually feel better. You know, give it a little bit of time, spend some, um, like really get a sense of, you know, does this pain change? Does it get worse? What's the pattern that I'm seeing in front of me? Yep, yeah, 100%. And so I had patellar tendinopathy when I was like 15, 16, playing, playing soccer. And I would say one of the interesting things about that versus PFP is it has a clear warm-up effect. So it would hurt getting out of bed. It would hurt when at first few steps kind of on the soccer field. But then once I was warmed up, I could manage. And then it would hurt like crazy after and the next day. Whereas PFP, the more you load the patellofemoral joint, the more it's going to hurt in mm. my experience with patients. Yeah, and I think that's the tricky part with PFP because a pattern of pain like that will really scare people into exercise, right? So that active population that used to, you know, love those weekend runs might not be able to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, just to close the loop on maybe diagnosis, and we're not being super thorough, but it's good to at least, you know, um, do a bit. Uh, what are the key activities that you would see as aggravating for people with patellofemoral pain? So I try to remember the four, but overall it's some sort of deep knee flexion, for example, when it's loaded. So going upstairs, going downstairs, those are two easy ones to remember. Running is a good one. And then also any deep sort of squatting. But it's interesting with this population because that seems like an active kind of pain pattern, but some people just have pain with sitting. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah. a tricky one. Have you delved into the research at all about what, like they call that the cinema sign, pain with prolonged sitting, as to why that occurs? Not really. I, I would say just going back to the Jacked Athlete podcast that we were talking about, um, some good understanding of why it might happen with a tendinopathy. And with tendinopathy, um, I guess the idea is, fluid within the knee, right? Just mm -hmm. allowing that joint to be at rest and letting that fluid or whatever um, sort of material is within that knee kind of sit in a spot and then a sudden movement like getting out of the chair, you know, might put a, put some weird kind of strains into that tendon. Right. Not so sure about patellofemoral pain. Yeah. So the only thing that I've heard about it, you know, Claire Robertson, who's a physio in the UK who specializes in, in PFP, she hypothesizes that a, the subset of PFP patients who have the cinema sign have uh, tight quads, which I'm not sure what to make of that. But mm. she, she was saying that something about the architecture of the musculature in the front of the leg, if they're in that sh kind of short seated position where that the patella is being somehow pulled into, into a mm. position where there's pressure on the, uh, on the sensitive structures, maybe that could account for it. But I don't think we understand it. There's yeah. probably a lot of dynamics going on. And I guess just an interesting tangent, right? My understanding of tightness can come, sometimes go to that understanding of weakness, yeah. right? As we, as we discuss sometimes. And totally. I wonder if that same subset of, of population, like it would be a good idea to, you know, if you have cinema sign, what does that quad strength look like? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, which is what we'll, we'll get into in terms yeah. of assessing people. 
Um, okay, one last thing about PFP before we move forward into risk factors assessment and, and treatment. Um, what do we know about the pain source? Because you know, when if you kind of uh, bring it on to something like non-specific low back pain, the whole idea there is that we don't know from a, a research perspective. We can't. We don't have the clinical set of tests to assess what the structures are that are causing the nociception peripherally. So with PFP, there's some hypotheses. Maybe just just give us a, a summary yeah. of what those are and yeah it's it's kind of funny there's a there's a couple camps right there's some people that would want to call this um issue anterior knee pain right super non-specific right um but some of the some of the leaders are shifting away from that and trying to you know it's a good idea to diet like differentiate between all the other stuff that we've been talking about right so anterior knee pain you know like what else can be causing that pain right so yeah. i think the major argument for where the pain, uh, pain might be coming from, even though it's a little bit murky, is kind of that subchondral bone, which yeah. is uh, highly innervated. Mm -hmm. um, but what's your take on it? Uh, yeah, no. From like, I think we know what isn't causing the pain, which is cartilage, because yeah. mm -hmm. the, the cartilage doesn't have any uh, free nerve endings. Yeah. So it, it can't be that. Um, so you know the the most reasonable theories that it's it's the bone that's right under the cartilage or I think some people have postulated that it could be the synovium like the tissue that kind of surrounds the joint mm -hmm. even um, people talk about the fat pad as well right there's yeah there can be a little bit of um well there's a, there's a lot behind that knee right it's there, not as is. simple as, as bone over bone yeah although from like I think I've seen one fat pad patient mm -hmm. and it had a completely different presentation to most patellar femoral pain syndromes like Pain with extension, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Where you're compressing that fat pad, and uh, so it seems to me like they're two distinct mm -hmm. things. But I would say the one of the aspects that people are looking at with thinking about where this pain might be coming from is you know zooming out of that biomedical paradigm where you're thinking about pure structure, right? So yeah. the one thing that we kind of talked about off air is those uh, psychosomatic factors, right? Everything else that makes pain so complex, right? Mm -hmm. So um, kind of touching on the on the fat pad discussion, hard to say. I'm just kind of thinking, you know, what if it's a little bit of everything, right? Yeah. Like, could there could there be situations where where it's just more than one structure, right? Like, yeah. Or, or is it is it hard to say? Oh, for sure. And I mean, this is the the thing that it's hard from our perspective to really have a, a, a really strong opinion on this. For because, sure. <laughs> um, Jill Cook, she was very, very adamant that you can't have uh, patellar tendinopathy and patellofemoral pain syndrome mm -hmm. at the same time. Whereas Claire Robertson, who also has treated like 10,000 patellar <laughs> PFP patients, says that she's seen it a bunch. And then Jill Cook also said... Um, but she doesn't even see fat pad patients. She's like, I don't really think it's a thing. And then, you know. Yeah, it's like, murky. So, it's quite so, murky, right? you know, I think you just, it's, it doesn't, at the end of the day, it's really getting into the minutia of it. Um, at the end of the day, is it going to change what we do? Yeah. Well, sometimes, right? And that's where it's, it's yeah. important to try to figure out when it, when it is and when it isn't. Um, but going into the kind of the sometimes scenarios, right? Like, as long as you've ruled out those big factors right like you know anything else that needs more medical attention um as long as we're 
keeping track, constantly reassessing each time the patient comes in, mm -hmm. it might not be that worth it to focus so much on. Is it mitochondrial bone? Yeah. You know? is oh, it, oh, is for it this? Sure. Is it that? So yeah, for me, it's not like, it does, is it this synovium or this mitochondrial <laughs> bone? For me, it's, it's more, am I missing like a meniscal issue or, yeah, or, or like, or like an osteochondral defect <clears throat> that's going to break off and there's going to yeah, be a loose totally. body floating around, which needs surgical intervention. I've seen two of those. Yeah where it, you know you could look at them and just say well it's painful me it hurts with flexion I'm gonna just give them strengthening exercises totally. but they, they needed a consult with a surgeon so yeah no no totally yeah. um and i think uh from that podcast that we uh were listening to like really great resource the bradley neal podcast um you know big takeaway from that is those synovitis patients right those those patients with you know loose bodies of cartilage that you know break away can cause this kind of inflammatory reaction that's not really on my radar. You no, know? I, no, I don't think I've ever really seen one of those. But it's a good idea to keep out, keep an eye out for what could come into the clinic. Yeah. Um, so you know, again, we're not treating the wrong thing for you know weeks on weeks on end. For sure. Yeah. No, I think that that pretty much closes the loop on on tissue source of pain. Uh, yeah. So I thought the next thing that we could discuss is prognosis because this is something that I didn't realize. <laughs> how bad the situation was. Yep, and this is what caused me to uh, have this discussion in the first place, right? It can be a little bit depressing. So what do we know about the prognosis and the outcomes of people that are diagnosed with patellofemoral pain? So looking at the stats, looking at our little notes that we brought in, 90% of um, patients with patellofemoral pain can still have symptoms four years after diagnosis. How does that make you feel? <laughs> yeah, not, <laughs> all kinds of ways. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like so there's there's a few different prognostic stats, but one meta-analysis that Brad Neal cited uh, showed that 60% of people with PFP still report significant pain five to eight years post-diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess it, it does depend on the, the studies that you do look at. But I think that's... Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. So, so then I thought it'd be worth briefly touching on the hypotheses around why it has such a bad prognosis. Because it, 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 like the question is, what feeds into that stat, right? And so the, yeah. maybe the, the first point, which was Rich Willie's point, was that it he thinks it's a, a consequence of undertreatment, mm -hmm. which is that we we as physios don't actually carry out uh, a, a long and thorough enough strengthening protocol mm -hmm. and, and management program with these people they fall off after a month and then they have a recurrence you know when they go back to their sport and so that was his hypothesis but yeah but yeah so what's what's your thought on on that maybe maybe just touching on that the one big takeaway um on that aspect of things is this is a tricky diagnosis right um our natural history is not going to do a great job in treating this patient so throwing all our fancy tools and just hoping for the best most of the time doesn't work right so it seems like you know the current guidelines for the way to treat this is through exercise but if we're looking at exercise from like a strength change component you know that's six to twelve weeks minimum right yeah. so how long are we seeing patients right so mm -hmm. with certain with, with some of these patients you know they'll fall off in four weeks because they're discouraged you know, especially considering like, you know, those first six months that I was working, I didn't know how to treat these, right? We didn't really get a good understanding of what the best um, uh, protocols for these patients is. And it can be a little bit of a doozy. So, 
if you don't have that framework and have that like establish, you know, what the expectations are from the get-go, patients are going to ask, you know, I've been coming to physio for four weeks, you know, I've spent a bunch of money on this and I'm not seeing any changes. So, um, it can be tricky to try to convince that patient, you know, four weeks after it, oh, it's just a strength thing. It's just a strength thing. But if you make those, um, if you make that really clear at the beginning of like what to expect over the next six months, that might drive up that stat a little bit better. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think uh, a really nice way to think about uh, patient satisfaction is that it is uh, their current state minus their expectations yeah <laughs> Do you know what i mean yeah, so true. if you set their expectations way too high that you're going to get them out of pain within two weeks yeah and then you, because like honestly that could be a consequence of you being ignorant about the prognosis of pfp totally you know? totally yeah and and then they're not and then you're surprised that they're not better yeah <laughs> because you've only treated like two of these yeah and, and then you're going they were misdiagnosed and you didn't treat them properly totally, and they got yeah. better and so and, and then they don't you know they don't get where they want to get and then they fall off because you lose that trust but yeah like setting expectations i would say if i could give myself yeah a piece of advice starting out understand what the prognosis is and then you can build small wins within that treatment plan where it's like okay i don't really care that much about your pain in the first four weeks here totally. this is a chronic thing you've had yeah. for a year like we're all I want is um, for us to hit these movement targets or these strength targets, which we're going to measure, you know, objectively. And, yeah, then, and, then, and then the patients bought in and it's like, okay, they didn't think that they were going to be completely yeah, yeah. magically cured within two weeks. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you'd yeah. be surprised how well people take, you know, these depressing stats. If, for example, you know, you might not get better in six months. Right. And even after six months, you might still have recurring flare-ups, right? But people take that well. If you're honest with them, it's not a scary subject to um, to have, right? Because I think when I came out of school, I thought I'd be this fixer of everything, right? And yeah. it's and it's and it sucks not being able to get someone better within those within that kind of crisis mode. You know, they come in with knee pain and they're training for a race, for example, and you know that you know. You might not be able to get back in that first month, right? But let's think on the big picture here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's the thing, right? Sometimes it is damage control with patients where mm -hmm. like, they have a, you just, I mean, maybe that's where there is some merit in just doing, just doing things to make them feel better and, and, and simply symptom modifying. Yeah. They, they have a race or like, I think in sports physio, a lot of times you're just getting people through it, right? Yeah. Like, Can't get someone stronger in a, in an hour <laughs> no. before a game, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> whereas like in, in an outpatient setting where it's more your general population runners and whatever, who don't have like the need to like hit a certain race, you can kind of step back and say like, let's reset some goals and we'll build, yeah. you, build you up from the ground. Let's think longevity. Ground zero. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think that's critical, and I, I totally agree with you that we we often, when we come out of school, think that we should be able to fix everything, but it's almost freeing in a sense when you realize that we only have the power to influence certain things. And totally. It's like the human body isn't, like we, we're not magicians. No, like we're there's, not. There's yeah. certain things that we do really well, um, but we can't fix everybody, and when you come yeah. to terms with that, I think the client really um it, it's comforting because it, it, they can tell you're being honest and you're just like hey this is the prognosis 
I, I think we got a good shot if we put in work for like three, four months of seeing yeah. good progress. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you want yeah. to have a go? Totally. And it's like, totally. <laughs> and you need to buy them in, right? Because it's not, when we think of ourselves as magicians, all of the pressure is on us, right? But yeah. we need that patient to be bought in. We need that patient to be doing the work, right? It's a mutual agreement. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, uh, as a bit of a tangent, this is where I feel like in my setting um, at Umana Health, because we have a gym, a gym environment, I, I've had decent results with a couple of, of patients with PFP because I can say, like, I'm going to see you twice a week. And they're down to do that yeah. and do the strength training there. Mm-hmm. And we can really properly progress their loading. Whereas I feel like sometimes in the past, giving if, if you just put somebody on a home program, they might not have the tools at home to adequately load themselves yeah. or like the, maybe the knowledge on how to progress or regress. And so, yeah. Um, and, I, and I think like we're going to dive into this at the end of the podcast, but those specific exercise progressions and even like the tools of like putting more pressure into the knee versus the hip, those little tiny um, differences that can make or break that person's lunge, for example, right? 100%. It can be tricky, like doing everything at home and relying on yourself, right? Yeah. And trying to fit everything in within a confined um, treatment time. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, I think sometimes like there's obviously this big movement towards self-management, mm-hmm. which is great, but we, there, like I think uh, being uh, being experts about movement and coaching exercise, should be one of the things that we're good at. Totally. And I, yeah. I don't feel as bad as I did when I started telling somebody that it's going to benefit them to come in twice a week. Totally. Yeah. And like self-management comes from a good foundation and you need to build that foundation early on, right? Yeah. Like how it, often do you, have you had somebody just fall off because you kind of sent them away and said, oh, I'll see you in a week. And then they don't, you know, they don't see changes. Cause yeah, they've had a busy week, right? Yeah. Exams hit, stressful week at work. I didn't do any of the exercises. Okay, so we're exactly where we were a week ago, right? Yeah. We're thinking big picture. Whereas if we had seen them twice, they're actually, they, they might have bought in, they might yeah. have like prioritized that. So it's, it's really fascinating. Thing it is, it is. And, it, and I think this is, the reason why we're having this discussion is because these details matter in this population and some other injuries that we're treating it doesn't matter as much (laughs) it's not that it doesn't matter but it doesn't matter as much and something like a mechanical low back pain that comes in that's one where they're really good self-limiting prognosis totally they don't really even need to see you like Mm -hmm. maybe they need to see like in a sense that they can become chronic if they don't get good advice early on or something like that but with pfp um they don't get better on their own. It's not yeah. something like, as Rich really said, it's not something you just grow out of. Yeah. Like, you, you need treatment. And so this is awesome because so many physios are so nihilistic these days. Like, Oh, we have yeah, nothing yeah, to yeah. offer people. That's a value. And, Oh, it's all just natural history anyways. But this For is, sure. a, this is a condition where what we do matters. Definitely. Which is awesome. You know, like, it is awesome. Yeah. And I think, and I think my mindset has changed in the last week knowing that. Yeah. Yeah. So to completely, um, shift the discussion and shift what we were just talking about bradley neil on a podcast that we were listening to also a really good resource in this field says that the patients that are going in after their second third fourth fifth um encounter with a physiotherapist those gold standard we only treat patellofemoral pain patients uh in clinics they don't get better sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So it's tricky, right? It's it's uh it's it's hard to know that you know even the gold standard of care doesn't always get rid of pain. Right? Yeah. So it, yeah. it's 
there's both sides of the end to it, but I think it's we gotta shift towards more of the middle because, and in the middle being you know providing somewhat of a change because there's a lot of patients that I've seen with this with this issue like we talked about that just fall off and there's no there's no change within the time that you see physio. Yeah, and I think that to a large degree comes down to excellent communication skills, mm-hmm. even more than having a good understanding of the research. Like you have to be you have to build trust and you have to build that therapeutic alliance. So somebody is consistent, like, and, and people feel so guilty about holding somebody to a treatment plan. And it's something that I did at first as well. Like you're like, yeah. Oh, well this person's only got X amount of dollars to spend. on totally. It's like, well, yeah, but they if also like, if you don't intervene properly, like they might have a, a, a significant amount of disability for longer than they yeah, need and to. Yeah. That's going to so. cause X amount of dollars as well. Right. Yeah, like yeah. We, 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 I think we, we undervalue what we do, and especially as new grads, maybe rightfully because you don't really have much experience. Yeah, what's her value? Well, <laughs> no, it's, it's and I think, and that's I, I often talk to people about imposter syndrome, totally, and yeah. I think the only way to get over imposter syndrome is to get better at what you do. There's no hacks, you, you need to actually become somebody who identifies with the value you can provide by getting better at doing that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, you got to get confident, right? And you got to know your self worth. Yeah. Um, Okay. So, kind of steering us back towards the specifics of PFP, I thought it'd be worth just briefly touching on the some of the risk factors and some of the data around um, what predicts who will go on to develop PFP. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like maybe I'll start off with strength. Yeah. Um, just a, a couple of the studies. I, I found it fascinating looking into this literature. Um, when you look at when you look at military recruits, they've shown that people who had weaker quads were more likely to go on to develop PFP. Yep. But that's just in military recruits. So that data hasn't been replicated in like adolescent populations. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you look at when you look at adolescent populations, a couple of things come out of the data first prospectively people with stronger hip abductors mm-hmm. are more likely to develop PFP. So maybe I'll let you kind of expand on why that might be the case. Cause that's very counterintuitive. A lot of mm-hmm. times physios think, okay, PFP, you're going to have weak abductors. That's like the classic glute meads weak. That's you know, yeah. causing your knee pain. So tell us kind of why that might be a predictive fa- factor. So just going back to the military recruits, because I think these two areas are what we found to be the bigger risk factors, right? There's a lot of risk factors that people have talked about, and it's in the literature, but it's murky. It's, 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 there's not the best findings on it, right? So yeah. with the military recruit examples, kind of going with, the, uh, with what you were talking about, strength, right? Like, okay, so weak quads predict PFP. But no, in a military population, you got to know the details in a way, right? So in a military population, no matter how strong you are, you have the same amount of load on your back, right? When you're doing a lot of the, um, a lot of the drills and a lot of the tasks. Mm. So it makes sense to be stronger, um, as strong as you can be. So you can last longer within that training camp, for example. If you've never done anything for your quads, there's a good chance that you're going to develop a lot of these other issues, right? So... It's hard to extrapolate that to a general population in a sense. Um, where, for example, you know, some people do have strong quads in a way, and 
um, they still have BFP, right? (laughs) So um, always knowing the details is kind of like the big factor that I learned about when we were talking about these um, risk areas. And then going back to the original question that you had, um, we had this whole discussion for like a good hour or so figuring (laughs) out why the heck, uh, why the heck people like adolescents with stronger quads or sorry, stronger hip abductors might um, uh, predispose themselves to PFP. And I think the simplest way to think about it is those those individuals with stronger hip abductors might just have a higher activity level, right? So they're at a younger age, but they're involved in more sport. So maybe it's that their higher activity levels, you know, thinking about those bigger picture values of, you know, rest and um, their overall training load is what might be causing some of these issues as opposed to the, uh, the valgus and all that stuff that we were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah no, and I think that's, uh, it's, it's worthwhile kind of unpacking it a little bit because it's you often see one risk factor in a study and you assume that it's a link from A to B. Yeah. Um, but often A is a proxy for, you know, C, which then predicts B. Mm-hmm. So it's like, um, yeah, like you said, maybe people with stronger hips maybe that's just a, a proxy variable which reflects their greater activity levels which could predispose them to PFP. The other um, hypothesis which is just worth thinking about is under the old biomechanical paradigm of valgus being a knee valgus being a predictor of PFP and hip adduction being a predictor of PFP. Um, it, it has been hypothesized that the hip abductors would be stronger because they've had to manage that valgus force. Uh, There's a really big moment arm on the hip abductors when you're in adduction, right? Like when you lengthen out a muscle, the hip abductors have to eccentrically control that contraction. So if we're postulating that valgus is related, then maybe the hip abductor strength is, you know, a function of that. So that's that was the other idea that that I read in in a discussion yeah. portion of a of a uh, paper, but mm-hmm. then the data on valgus isn't compar- isn't conclusive, right? No. So they've shown that um, I think it was Brad Neal's work actually he showed that prospectively hip adduction was a uh, a predictor of onset of PFP in females, but not in males. Uh, but it was like, yeah, it's not a not a really really um, profound association. Yeah, and it probably depends on the person. Yes. Right? So maybe there's these bigger risk factors that encompass a larger population, and then there's these smaller risk factors that you might see. You might still see someone with a really um, poor valgus, you know, and then they jump off of uh, a box and they land in that valgus, and it hurts their knees, right? So, like, maybe let's try to correct that, but... Some, there's some beautiful movers out there, right? That land in all sorts of weird sort of positions and I get pain. <laughs> and then it's like, where where are we trying to intervene, right? You can get lost in the weeds when you think about the uh, bio uh, biomotor paradigms. Yes, you can. And there's a one paper that's worth mentioning. Uh, the the first author was Rabello, and they did an RCT where they compared two groups. One group got hip and knee strengthening. The other group got. Um, got that as well as movement retraining which focused on improving valgus and reducing hip adduction and both groups got better like both had decreases in pain but there was no difference in the valgus Mm -hmm. at the end of it when the kinematics were measured so that's where um somebody like greg layman is very he's a stickler on we can't call valgus a fault because people get better even when it doesn't change 
You know what I mean? So even if prospectively, a little like a few more degrees of hip adduction, not to get in the weeds here, but predicts mm-hmm. um, PFP, if those same people can get out of pain without hip, the hip adduction changing, then what does that tell us? Like, is, is that a kinematic that needs to be addressed, right? So, yeah. so I think yeah. this is probably a good um, point to, yeah, contrast the, some different paradigms for thinking about about PFP, like you mentioned the biomotor correction. Mm-hmm. And that paradigm kind of posits that we know we know what kinematics need to change in order for you to get better. Like I'm gonna address this impairment, which is weak hips, and then you're gonna get better, and it's because we address the weak hips. And I think what what I've what I've concluded from reading a lot of the literature recently is that we don't know precisely what mediates recovery in people and there's a there's a lot of things to look at right like there's overall macro training load volume frequency intensity there's there's biomechanics hip adduction foot pronation all this stuff knee valgus and and then there's life stress there's sleep you know um the uh stress levels nutrition all of these things and and we can either key in on a kinematic as like we're correcting this biomotor quality or we can take a more comprehensive look and this is where the the notion of comprehensive capacity comes into play it's like if we can't say that i need to fix x biomotor quality in order for you to get better maybe we take a we cast a wide net instead of casting out one line Mm -hmm. right so yeah, yeah i'll let you riff on that so Leo and I are super biased because this is the way that we've been thinking about physio ever since we got out of physio school. So I think we're, we're at a weird time uh, in our graduation, right? Because a lot of these models, for example, like the super biomechanical approach where everything is looked at at that lens was kind of fizzling out or not even fizzling out, but the discussions of, around it we're suggesting what you what we just mentioned right like looking at a bigger picture so i think the only thing that i wanted to really mention about this is for any like new grad listening it can be complicated (laughs) any of the stuff we're talking about right you can um you can think how do i become an expert in nutrition how do i become an expert in sleep how do i (laughs) how do i uh provide all these like sound tips and and provide an all-encompassing approach but the way that I like to uh, think about it and the thing that really um, that I didn't like about studying like a pure biomotor correction approach is there seems to be a lot of memorization in that approach, right? You, you need to know the specific angles of each specific joint and how that plays into a bigger picture and in a moving system. But I think if we just come to the conclusion that the body is complex, then we might be a little bit more... Um, easy on ourselves thinking about those bigger factors right so you don't have to be you don't have to be an expert to tell someone you should probably be sleeping more than four hours a night and maybe don't have that 10 p.m coffee you know like you have a lot of these stresses in your life and and um it might be seriously aggravating the issue that we're treating here right like yeah Let's think about the big pillars before we dive into the weeds. I think that is probably my biggest takeaway over the last year of being a physio. Yeah. And then the, 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 the art of being a physio is figuring out what's a big pillar. Yeah, totally. So, you know, like Greg Lehman had this, this quote in his course where he's like, we can tweak hip adduction by five degrees or we can look at your overall life loads, like sleeping four hours a night. 
Like, which is going to have a bigger impact? And, yeah. and I think that's something that's worth talking about as we're just moving away from the risk factors. I don't think it's ever one thing. I don't think it's no, ever, like, not. it's it's typical, it's always going to be a constellation of somebody who maybe had an acute spike in loading, maybe there was life stress from the pandemic, Yeah. you know, maybe they were sleeping poorly, maybe they have a stressful job, um, and maybe they have weak hip abductors and weak quads, and all these things coalesce, and then there's one straw that breaks the camel's back, Yeah. Um, which, which is nice, because it gives us options for treatment, right? It, it gives us a lot of places to intervene. Yeah, 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 and I think, um, like, anecdotally, right, the more that I've learned about my body over these years, super biased right we come from like a kinesiology approach going into physiotherapy um but thinking about you know my friends in engineering thinking about um some people that have no idea of the feelings that they get in their body like it's 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 pretty easy to ignore them right you have a cranky knee one day who cares (laughs) like let's let's go to our our badminton uh, uh game tonight let's go to our soccer practice or whatever like i'm not gonna let that hold me down this is the one time i have to do exercise this week right yeah so um it's tricky it's tricky it's not and and i think going back to like our value-based discussion this is where we provide our value as physios like we have the knowledge and know-how to to tell it to steer people into the right direction right yeah totally and um as we're talking about the like the multiple variables that play into PFP, I think it's just worth framing it uh, with clients in terms of probabilities. Like I, I really like this model where because we never know what needs to change, all we can try to do is maximize the probability of success. So we're we're never we're never placing a bet that we know is going to come good, right? Like we mm-hmm. we're always. We're looking at all these factors, right? Sleep, stress, movement retraining, you know, kinematics, strength, macro uh, training load. And then we're going to kind of, I think what we need to do is weight them, right? So we need to place a bet on which are the most important places to intervene. Mm -hmm. And the reason you have to do that, and the reason why comprehensive capacity, just addressing everything, doesn't work is because of opportunity costs. Like if you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. And we don't have infinite time and resources, nor does the client at home. Um, So you you do need to decide what's most important. And this is where even though we have these prospective studies showing us that X, Y, and Z are are important for PFP, we need to find a way of of making our rehab kind of bespoke to the client Mm -hmm. and narrowing it down and saying, I think that our time is best used doing this or this, mm. right? And so that's that's where it's tough, but I guess where it's fun, right? Like it, yeah. that, that's why our job is is rewarding and challenging because no two PFP patients is, are the same, even though all research ever tries to do is homogenize things. Yeah, and I think like as we gain more expertise within this field, you know, one year down, you know, <laughs> we're experts now, nah. not even close. But um, the way the way that I like to think about it is value based care, right? So it's crazy to think, but you know, our little job as physiotherapists, we ha- can have a big impact on people's lives, right? And if we're not providing the best care for a certain diagnosis, and if we're not reading up on the on some of the best practices around uh, a field, um, we might be that aspect that that leads that patient down into a life of inactivity, right? Like someone could be the most active individual, develop this PFP, 
have a whole host of stress going on in their life. They lose that um, that love for activity and, you know, all those longer term metabolic health, cardiovascular health aspects create a bigger burden on the healthcare system as a whole. So it is kind of crazy to think about how we fit into a bigger picture uh, of the healthcare system. Um, so thinking about this comprehensive capacity idea, you know, we could, we could, you know, get people out of pain, but we could also change their minds. You know, we could, we could provide them with resources to, to live a healthy, happy life, you know, and, and drive longevity in the population. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, we spoke a lot about that on our last podcast where it's not just is my intervention effective for this condition, but what are the secondary benefits or what are the side effects? That's, I guess, another variable that plays into your, your decision around what intervention you're going to choose. And that's why I'm choosing exercise for PFP as the totally. cornerstone of the foundation. Cause even if maybe their PFP doesn't fully resolve, I can prevent kinesiophobia and fear avoidance and inactivity and improve their metabolic health and, and management strategies. Yeah. Down yeah, the line, right? Totally. So, you know, I, I think that's a, a really important point. Um, yeah. So I thought maybe from here I would discuss like the only original thought I had around PFP. Because <laughs> um, all we're doing really is parroting the thoughts of other smart people here. Of course. But, um, Podcasts the, teach you a lot. They do, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, podcasts and PubMed. Yeah. Um, what the, the, the way that I have kind of been framing how to pick what interventions we use for clients is through like a Venn diagram where if you can imagine one circle shows what the research says, one circle shows what you see with your eyes when you assess the client, and then a third circle that intersects shows biological plausibility. Those three factors kind of mediate what I'm going to do. So here's the thing, right? I want my intervention to be justifiable. And so I'd, I'd love for there to be research that backs it up because everybody's, you know, bangs on about being evidence-based. It's in everybody's Instagram bio. Oh, you, um, you better cite those uh, <laughs> research articles in your Instagram post. I, I, I need that PMID, man, in the comments. <laughs> anyway, so here's, a, like, if, but but what's interesting is that we don't have prospective data showing us on, on every potential biologically plausible avenue for treatment. So oh, yeah. we've got prospective data on, you know, hip strength, whatever. We don't even have it for activity modification and loading. And, and this is the tricky part about patellofemoral pain. As we are seeing, the most the most recent clinical practice guideline came out in 2019. Yeah. You look at that guideline, a lot of good information in there, but it's still murky. <laughs> it's super murky. And so um, here's the thing. I think our interventions need to have two of the circles in or like overlapping. So if if the client, like, so what, one of the things I often address or assess is calf strength. Uh, I just, I find with, with people that run or just general population who get into running, they're super weak in their calves. Like put them on a decline calf raise with proper form where they're, you know, ascending vertically in an elevator as opposed to going up in the escalator. And they do like five reps to yeah, fatigue. They burnt out. And um, so that to me, even though we don't have prospective data showing that decreased calf strength predicts patellofemoral pain, that's really biologically plausible as a potential mechanism for, for developing knee pain. Yeah. And so that in, in that scenario, we have an overlap between biological plausibility and what the client demonstrates in the assessment. Um, 
you know, conversely, if we just had what we were looking in the client assessment, oh, they have like weak shoulders. That has no biological plausibility, really, as a as a consequence, as as, as a predictor of knee pain. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to be something that I address. It depends on you ask, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, shout out NKT. Yeah. Um, anyways, so that's kind of how I, I think about orienting my interventions, and and maybe this is a good spot to talk about how we actually assess people. Uh, you know, I've been really fortunate to practice with a dynamometer from literally my first week in practice. Um, we use an inline dynamometer that's called the Tindec Progressor, and it's a rock climbing tool. It's, right? a, it's a rock climbing tool, yeah. Um, those Norwegian rock climbers <laughs> <laughs> showed out, uh, but it's it's been applied in in a rehab setting really widely now. Mm-hmm. And um, the 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 brilliant thing about it is that you can quantify where they're at in terms of their hips and their knees. So, you know, I was thinking about a client that I had a couple weeks ago where the pain that was arising was most most um, disabling with going downstairs. And I, I got him on the dynamometer and we looked at his quad strength. And on the affected side, it was 100 pounds peak force. And on the unaffected side, it was 130. And I'm like, that's a significant difference. That's glaring mm-hmm. me in the face. Yeah. Um, tested hips and they were about 25 both sides pretty reasonable solid hip strength so you know i'm gonna probably gonna bias my i'm definitely gonna train quads yeah do, do you know what i mean yeah for sure, for um, sure. no i wouldn't have needed the dynamometry research or the, the or, or the, the the dyno testing for me to train i was probably would have trained quads <laughs> anyway yeah. but it's a beautiful tool for buy-in and it totally. gives us it gives us something to work towards in the short and medium term yeah it's 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 uh it's really cool to see a patient's face when they see those numbers right they know that there's work to be done right yeah yeah 100 percent and it's hard right hard to do that with an mmt oh you're up to a four oh four plus, plus, plus yeah. five <laughs> yeah i never understood that and it's it's uh it's interesting that in physio school we don't discuss these more objective measures because we're, we're big on objective testing but you think like this is one of the most objective tests that we have, right? Yeah. Measuring someone's strength with numbers. <laughs> and the Tinder is like 200 bucks. Yeah, it's 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 so very cheap. valuable, yeah. And if you're thinking about patient buy-in, right? Like that'll pay itself off for those patients that, you know, okay, I can see yeah. that there needs to be some strength done. Let's buy into an exercise program. 100%. Yeah. I uh, A patient comes to mind. I was thinking about like patients that have had success versus failure with with PFP. And there was one patient who had really chronic knee pain, big reliance on bracing, pain running, walking, going up the stairs. And uh, we, again, we tested hips and quads. And her, her quad strength was like equal to her hip strength. It was like 20, 21 pounds. Wow. And she was in her, her mid-40s. And I was like, that's weak. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And right. so we worked for three months on just progressions that we'll talk about. We'll go into that yeah. in, in a second. Um, and when, when I retested her quads, it was like doubled. It was like 50 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, hip abductors were roughly the same. And so, like, I know there's a lot of clinicians that really bias the hip. And I think for good reason. Like, I think if you can't, if you don't have the, the tolerate, like if a patient can't tolerate quad strengthening, start at the hip. But I've seen, I've seen good results for people, like just, trying to find a good entry point to work on quad strength. Yeah, totally. You know? Um, and maybe for our listeners, um, do you have a, do you have any numbers that you like to keep in mind when you're, when you're doing dynamometry? I mean, I, I'm always looking at the 
the interesting thing is that do like you always ask yourself, do we have good norms? Not really. Yeah. The only place we have good norms is ACL rehab. But even there, like they use like a limb symmetry index where like you want it to be at least 90% um, uh, the affected side, you know, mm-hmm. versus the unaffected side. But what I often see in these populations is that they're weak on both sides. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, however, like in the patient I mentioned uh, earlier, there was a big discrepancy side to side. So you, you, you have a baseline with their unaffected side. And I think that's... Yeah. that's pretty much the most pragmatic way of, of using it. I don't think you, you can run yourself in circles looking for normative data. Yeah, and, and I think that also feeds into the point that it's you need to measure more than just the quads. Yeah. Like you, you need to look at the hips, right? You can and, and it's like outside of the diamondry, right? Like the calf raise tests, right? Yes. Like how many calf raises can you do, right? Like get a sense of the overall function of the lower extremity between sides. Spend some time looking at that, right? Because because if you're super lost on that first day with that patient, and there's a lot that you think that can be worked on, those values provide a good starting point, right? When in doubt, you can you can just work on the things that you seem that that seem weak. Yeah, and it gives you some grounding. It gives you a plan. Yep. You know, it, there's nothing worse than going back to your chart and just having like continue strengthening quads with no objective goal in mind. Yeah. It's sweet. Like when you have a when you have a patient that you've put the it's really just the you've been thoughtful enough to and you've had the time maybe. Maybe it's partly just like a resource thing. Yeah. Um, but like you you've really set goals that are thoughtful. Like they're not just yeah, strengthen quads, strengthen hips. Yeah, you know, two times a week for the next six weeks. It's like, okay, like, what? Do, where do I want to be in four weeks? Where? What's the long term plan here? And I think that's that's what that's probably helps get good results with people. Is is really taking the time to think what's important here, what needs yeah. to change. And, and shout out to the uh, independent practice uh, application that we just completed. <laughs> College would love the objective results. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're tracking change over time helps you it helps uh your charting makes you look like a good physio yeah 100 percent, man um is there anything else that you want to chat about in terms of assessment because i i think uh when i just think practically what do i do with a patient you need to get a baseline of point a like where are they in all these different factors mm-hmm. what's their tolerance to deep knee flexion like maybe i'll ask you specifically diving into the details what would you how would you assess irritability like do you just step down like where, where do you go to look at you know deep loaded knee flexion um I, I would say if you have the chance to see the patient walking into the clinic then that's going to be quite valuable um or even their ability to get out of the chair that can tell you a lot um, typically I'm more of like, an, you know, start my exam with, with this objective and you might get a lot of the, a lot of the grit there mm-hmm. and you might get a sense of, you know, what, what's the last like three months looked like for you, right? Is this a, is this a recent flare up? Is this something that you've been living with for two years? Is it, am I the fifth physio that you've seen yeah. for this? Right. That, that can really help me understand where we want to, where we want to be. And I think working out of mana has been very fascinating because we have this treatment room that we start our assessments in, but we also have this beautiful gym with access to a bunch of equipment with. And I always try not to forget, you know, like do your, like do the basics in the room. Mm -hmm. If that patient is on the lower end of the continuum, just doing a resisted uh, uh, straight leg raise, for example, or looking at 
quad extension and sitting can tell you a lot, right? Even yeah. AROM quad extension. Yeah. Like those basics, right? But if we're thinking about more of an athletic population, I would just try to frame it in the first four things that we mentioned at the beginning. So we're thinking stair ascent, stair descent, um, and any sort of like deep knee flexion. Uh, running can be like a little bit tricky, especially on that first day, but it always depends on like where that patient's coming in with. Um, if you look at, you know, their, their ability, like closed chain quad function, it, it can tell you a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I agree with you. I think probably 90% of the diagnosis is in the subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're kind of confirming. Which, which, which kind of like the going back to what we were talking about with how to diagnose it, because a lot of it can be seen in, in the subjective, don't get lazy and not rule out the tendinopathies, the loose bodies, the or those, those weird ones, you, you know, know what I mean? Even like a lumbar radicular pain. Totally. Yeah. Like, you, yeah. like sometimes if somebody has an athletic history, you just jump right to mechanical knee pain. But do your straight leg raise, do your slump test, do your lumbar range of motion. Does that bring on the pain? Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's if it's kind of that weird diffuse pain, sometimes uh, you, you can get that. You can even get um, articular hip joint pain that refers to the knee. Yeah. So yeah. you know, this is where it's worth just being really thorough and and maybe just as a broader point for new grads and people that are just starting out, it's worth being very very slow and and comprehensive in your assessment even if maybe it takes a bit longer and you don't get any treatment in 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 my opinion i know a lot of people are really value getting some treatment in on day one whatever that looks like but i'm a big fan of just knowing what i'm dealing with Mm -hmm. on day one rule out lumbar spine for any lower quadrant issue right rule like have a quick look at their hips so does that bring on, I had a patient with knee pain where like hip internal rotation, like scour test was the only thing that brought it on. And I was yeah. Like, it's yeah. a hip problem. Yeah. And you're not going to see those every week, right? Like those are going to be the ones that like slip through, right? Historically, yeah. right? So you want to make sure that you're the person that finds that, right? Try not to waste people's time treating the wrong thing. Yeah. Right? And constant reassessment is, is huge in this population. And to screen the lumbar spine and the hips takes like five minutes. Totally. Yeah. You know, bend down, bend back, side bend, side bend, you know, SLR, whatever it is. Yeah. Look at the hip, done. Okay, onto the knee. Onto the knee. Right? Exactly. It's like it, and it gives you that peace of mind that you didn't miss uh, one of those kind of zebras, right? Yeah. Um, they come through sometimes, right? They do, yeah. Um, but if we're thinking about really specifics, um, maybe geared towards a new grad, um, functional assessment. So, uh, dynamometry, we're looking at sitting quad extension, and that kind of looks like a rim. Uh, prone glute extension is a good one. Again, looks like a rim. Sideline abduction and adduction. So the adduction is a little bit weird. Um, it can it can be a w- little bit weird to set up. Do you want to just mention how we, how we do that? Yeah, so we just have a chain that we hook around the bottom of the plinth. And then we have carabinas, which attach to the inline dynamometer. So if you just imagine like a crane scale, that's essentially what an, in, an inline dynamometer is, as opposed to a handheld where you're you're physically pressing something against their, their lower leg as they lift up and, and you have to match or break their pressure. Um, so with an inline, you got to hook it up to some st- stable surface and they pull against an immovable object and then it measures the amount of force that it can output. That goes into my phone. We have a Bluetooth connected app 
and that shows exactly it can show yeah. you the uh, peak force, the endurance, as well as the rate of force development. Yeah, which I do th less of. there's some good metrics, and 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 even um, the ability for that person to maintain force over time is a really cool one. Because you can like I've seen strong people come in good numbers on that scale, but the endurance isn't there, and 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 that become relevant, you know, on those 10k hikes, you know, for example, like um, so. If you don't have one of those, um, again, we're, we're pretty biased to, um, to having one of those in, in the clinical setting. Um, but if you're thinking like classical um, functional assessment, don't need a lot of equipment for this. I would really recommend um, anyone who doesn't follow Chris Johnson to give him a follow. He's got a lot of good resources. And just recently, he posted a good video on how to assess um, calf strength. Um, you may be thinking that you're doing it right. I thought I was doing it pretty good, but I found a some good tips in there that really get a sense of um, uh, looking at that single leg calf strength. And that, that's your objective test, right? So we're, we're, we're getting a sense of between sides, what does it look like? What's the, what's the, what's the um, uh, displacement that that individual is able to get off of the floor? Does it look like more of a elevator when they get themselves up? Does it look like more of a, um, like you were mentioning, going yeah, up the escalator, absolutely. right? So um, just like a little bit of minutia, you guys can check out that resource if, if, if that interests you. Um, and then like more of the, more of the simple ones, um, get in on a step, <laughs> any sort of step, could be small, could be, like I would, I would say right around like mid-shin level would probably be a good one. Um, and then forward step up, lateral step up, and then a... Um, step down. Those are like the three easy ones. They don't take a lot of time. Um, and if the patient's, you know, doesn't have the most, like the best function there, get them to use a wall, get a sense of like how that stability is, even if there is no pain. Yeah. And I would say in order of irritability, I would probably say forward step up and then lateral step down and then forward step down mm -hmm. in terms of just increasing the, the tibial angle. The shin angle yeah, yeah, dictates sure. a lot of the compressive like stress on the PFJ. Yep. So... And then, you know, another constraint that's nice to use with somebody who isn't very irritable and you have to really, you know, you're trying to to stress that joint to reproduce symptoms, which happens sometimes, is if you get somebody against the wall and you have a slant board or some, some way to elevate the heel um, and you get them to do a, a squat in that position, that just ensures that they maintain a vertical torso. Mm -hmm. And we know that if we're to move somebody from the hinge to a squat into the continuum, we want vertical torso or as, as parallel to the shin angle as we can. Whereas if the trunk folds forward, they're just compensating using their hip and their posterior chain. A, a good way that I like to remember it is uh, like knee over toe, right? So um, the deeper that knee goes into flexion and if you start to see that knee approaching that toe angle, that's typically going to be a little bit more compressive on the knee and it's not bad. It's just stress. Yeah. And stress is going to be applied along the continuum, right? So the reason why we start with hip strengthening in a lot of these patients and a lot of people focus on hip strengthening in PFP is that if someone with a very irritable joint um, can't tolerate a lot of knee flexion, then it makes sense to be doing something that involves more of the hip. And that's why wall sets, Spanish squats, goblet squats even in some, in some individuals they work because we're shifting that bias onto more of like a hip strategy when we are in that squatting pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would doing it, doing a straight up hip hinge with somebody can be a nice strategy. Um, to, yeah. Straight knee, right. To maintain 
Yeah, so if you just look at the shin angle, that tells you everything. Like if 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 you gotta if you are somebody deadlift, the angle of the tibia doesn't really change in terms of like um, horizontal translation. Uh, whereas if you look at a squat, it's gonna you're gonna have that shin angle going forward, the trunk angle staying vertical. Whereas with the hinge, it just stays where it is. Um, so that's gonna put less stress on the telofemoral joint. And mm -hmm. so if you you can get I can get somebody doing a single leg RDL, and that's typically gonna feel fine for so our RDL for people who don't know Romanian deadlift. So um, that's gonna load up the hip abductors a lot but not load up the patellofemoral joint. And that can be a helpful interim strategy while somebody's very irritable to maintain their function without pissing off the joint. And this might be an eye roll for some of the strength gurus out there, but I think it's important to talk about because it's these details that can make or break the patient's exercise program, and that will determine their follow-through, right? So kind of go into what we talked about right at the beginning of the podcast, that patient that's coming in once a week and doing an exercise program, if you're not really giving them these details from day one, it makes it hard to manage, right? A squat isn't a squat isn't a squat, right? There's yeah. there's so many variations to movement that um, it can make it really tricky. And you know, the other thing that I would mention is that I've seen a lot of people who maybe I start off with or have been told that it's not okay for your knees to go over their toes. And that might that may have been a well-meaning coach shifting stress from the knee to the hip when they were irritable, but they didn't frame that with the, the notion that once it feels okay to put yeah. your knee over your toe, it's actually probably beneficial for you to do so in order to prepare that joint for the mm -hmm. demands of, of, of that activity. So um, I always try to I always try to just give a quick caveat when I'm getting somebody to only do hip stuff or when I'm coaching a really vertical shin angle, that this is a temporary strategy to offload the knee while it's sensitive, once it feels a little bit less sensitive, mm. then we want to push back into that forward uh, shin angle in order to kind of get some adaptation there. And this is the same as like a you know lumbar flexion, yeah, hip hinge idea, right? It's symptom modification procedures, temporary. And you just got to make sure the client understands that knees over toes isn't <laughs> isn't like the best position or the worst position. It's right? just stress, it's right? Just stress. And it's just yeah. and you can tolerate that stress better. You know, depending on your activity uh, demands, depending on the, you know, your day, going back to those big pillars, right? And I think if you ever hear, <laughs> if you ever hear a physio or a, like an Instagram guru mentioning that there's one bad position, you know, just just think a little bit deeper on that, right? That the body's complex, right? We we, yeah. we can we can handle a lot <laughs> without yeah. without having issues, right? So there's no point in in driving these fear-based um, approaches that you can never run again, for example, you can never squat again. It's like, what what are we really telling our patients if, if that is the if that is the idea? Yeah, and I think physios, yeah, like we and strength coaches, we we talk out of both sides of our mouth when it comes to stress. We're like, yes, we got to stress your muscles so it adapts and you know, we like this exercise is good because we're promoting adaptation, but then in the same breath, they'll say, we're going to avoid this exercise because it's like somehow harmful on the knee in the absence of pain. But you know, what we've, what we've seen in the literature is very clearly people who train their joints have a lower incidence of, you know, arthritis in those joints later yeah. in life. Like the, the data on runners having much lower, um, incidence of, uh, of, of knee osteoarthritis mm -hmm. than sedentary people. It's pretty clear on that. So like and bone stress injuries are a good one as well, right? 
A hundred percent. Like if you never do any plyometric activities where you're running, hopping, you could say, oh man, that's super stressful for your joints or your bones and that's going to cause an issue. But if you never are, if you don't, if you're not prepared for that and then you go do about it, that, that's the issue. So this is where like, you know, it's not the, it's not the movement that hurt you. It's your lack of preparation for the movement that hurt you. Yeah. I love hearing this because, uh, I hate to say this, but like when I was, when I was in like grade eight, grade seven, I totally had a parkour YouTube channel. (laughs) I was really into gymnastics, jumping off of stuff. And like my dad would get so pissed, (laughs) you know, I'm ruining my joints. I'm ruining this. Right. But, um, it's, it's nice to hear it, you know, full picture, you know, 15 years later or whatever. Yeah. So, um, so uh, important question, is that YouTube channel still live? No, I got rid of it. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) Oh, brutal. Yeah. Um, But you're right. You know, it's it's fascinating when you look at those really high load, like on on one end of the continuum, there's probably a there's a right or wrong way to jump off a roof. Yeah, totally. Forces, right? Totally. Um, But I think we're in a bit of the gray area when we come to like shoving your knee over your toes in a split squat. Like it's it's just it's it's yeah. not going to break people down as rapidly as as jumping from ten meters off yeah, the garage. totally, and that and that is when biomechanics matters a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, high load activities, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm definitely biased towards movement preparation over avoidance, but yeah. Um, so, anyways, that was a bit of a digression. Let's go. Let's go into specific exercises and maybe ways to train the quads without irritating the joint because. I find I've had better success building confidence with people with PFP when I don't just avoid the quads completely. Like, I feel like I've never found anybody that I can't do something for the quads with. Yeah. Whether it's low level or whatever. Like, what are some variations that you go to when somebody's very irritable to just give them a stimulus to maintain their, their quads function as opposed to completely ignoring it and going just up to the hip? All right, so it's not going to work in every single person, but the way that I like to think about it is typically closed chain um, greater than 90 degrees, right? Like going, pushing into those deep knee flexion moments are going to be a little bit um, more aggressive on the kneecap. So that can help you help guide some of the closed chain variations. Whereas for your open um, kinetic chain going up into those terminal knee extension moments might be a little bit more aggressive on the kneecap, right? So if you can kind of think about those two factors, again, might not work for everybody, but that can be a nice cornerstone, right? So for the really low level people, open connect chain uh, quad extension is a really, really easy way to show people that it's okay to get their knee moving, right? Maybe just keep it to 45 degrees though. and if you're lucky enough to have um, uh, some sort of uh, leg extension machine in uh, in your facility, then you know as long as it doesn't hurt, load them up as much as you can in that position, right? Like a really beautiful uh, way of thinking of it that Rich Willie kind of mentioned is we're always riding the fine line of causing a flare up with these patients and um, and you know avoiding. Uh, going backwards in a way, like like reducing the amount of uh, capacity in their system, right? So, like as we talk about some of these specifics, um, it like be aware that you might cause a flare up, but that's okay. It's it's part of the process, and we and we need to show these people that 
loading up the quads is like, you're going to have to do that at some point in your life. And if, if you see that, okay, um, I did a little bit too much and for the next day or so I can just manage the, the way that I'm, um, treating my exercises, then I can deal with these flare-ups on my own, right? And we build a more robust kind of uh, person. Um, and then to think about like the, the, the basics after, you know, um, like obviously like the hip strengthening is quite important, but I like to think of um, like wall sits. Like I think that's the one that we always uh, see in physio school when, we, when we're dealing with this population. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with, with the shin angle. Um, so you know, starting in some sort of isometric variation is, is a good idea if you're, if you're just starting out the closed chain. Right. Um, so like a, like a 45 or 60 degree yeah. angle wall sit, 30 seconds, get those quads burning, but as long as you don't feel symptoms in your PFP, yeah. you're golden. And some people might not even be able to hold that 45, right? They might be able, they, they might just be at the top depending on the person that you're dealing with, but it's better than, you know, just focusing on the hip, right? Like I think there's, like, like you said, there's always a window that we can, that we can go through when, and, when we're know, strengthening the quads. My bias too is that if we can get some stimulus to the knee joint, there might be some peripheral induced hypoalgesia, like, like analgesia there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So even if it's not just strengthening the quads, if I can load that joint and get things moving and fluid dynamics and yeah. whatever, like maybe that has a pain modulatory effect. And this is, this is why like calf isometrics hamstring isometrics aren't out of the picture like we we should just consider the knee joint as a whole um especially in those early stages when it's like you know quite irritable like we got to show that individual that it's safe to do exercise totally man and if we can tick some of those boxes while their knee joint is maybe just kind of coming down from that initial flare-up that can yeah like that builds confidence and to me that also just functionally like i'm happier with somebody going back to sport if they have strong hamstrings yeah like totally. pra pragmatically um yeah like i, I mean I, I always assess that i a movement or you know a muscle group i'm obsessed with is hamstrings i just i, f I have so many athletes who i put them in like a single leg bridge like mm -hmm. a long lever with their forefoot on the foam roller yep and they just cramp in like two seconds it's awesome yeah and it's like okay well it's that's work to be done right yeah, yeah. And, and somebody gets that sensation of uh whoa that is something I suck at. Like, yeah. okay, so there's but, some work to do here. But it's not like a, it's not like I'm saying, it's not like I'm making them feel like they're, you know, weak or whatever. It just it's it gives them a, it gives them a target to to, to work towards. Yeah, like, like you you have to make the exercise engaging. If it's too easy, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. And and I mean this, Rich Willie said it best. Uh, if you never get a flare up with somebody with PFP, you're probably underloading them. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's a, and, and, and that's something as a new grad, which is hard to deal with. It's easy to yeah. kind of go a bit squirrely when somebody has a flare up and get red in the face and be like, Oh, what are we doing here? Yeah. But when you have the confidence to say, listen, we, we need to provide the stimulus to the musculature around yeah. the joint. And, and this, and this is the reason why those initial discussions are so important. Like s setting that foundation at the beginning, this isn't going to be easy. You're going to have flare ups, but we're going to teach you how to manage them Yeah. and we're going to get you stronger um, and get you back to your activities, you know, in some, in some way. Yeah. And it's feels analogous to me, the process with like an, like a femoral acetabular impingement, like FAI, not to digress, but, or go on a tangent, but I, I enjoy that kind of patient now because I don't put so much pressure on myself to have a quick fix. And I'm, I think I'm better than I used to be at, at setting expectations. 
and I've had good results with those people. Like we follow them for like four months, six yeah. months. And probably and don't have the best results with them in the first seven days though, right? No, but if, yeah. yeah, but if I was staking my, my, you know, my, how I was feeling about it on those first seven days, then I'd be, I'd be, you know, a basket case when I came back in. But yeah, you just, like we said in the beginning, you just set that, those expectations appropriately. And, um, and then, and then, you know, you, you kind of know what checkpoints you need to hit by the end of it. Maybe that's another point to hit on is in the initial assessment, it really helps somebody when you can tell them, okay, by a couple weeks in, here's where I want to be. By a couple weeks after that, here's where I want to be. Here's where we're looking at down the road here and have it be like this checkpoint based thing. So you've, mm -hmm. you've taken some objective measurements. You're like, I want your quads to be at this amount of peak force in terms of pounds within six weeks. You know, let's make that happen, and then that this is where I want. This is where we're thinking your activity level is going to be within that time frame. Mm -hmm. And then they're not just in this murky water of kind of well. Oh, we're getting stronger, right? You know, yeah. like yeah, can't go wrong getting strong. Yeah. Um. Anyways, I, I, yeah. So, um, I think a nice thing to touch on as well. Um, we can always think about our athletes, right? It's sexy. Like we got our big exercises with them. We, we got all the fun stuff, all the high level stuff, but, um, think basics, right? So think, think about that patient that, you know, uh, weekend warrior, um, they're busy, you know, they're working 10 hour days, showing them how to manage like a little bit of pain with a quad isometric, a hamstring isometric and sitting, you know, using a wall, you know, using their desks while they're on a call. Um, those can be like, easy strategies, right? And, and again, it's kind of like, we, we need to give them as many tools um, as we can so that even if they're not doing their exercise program within a week, they're, they're managing their symptoms, right? They're, they're not getting to a point where uh, they're coming in on their next visit with a, with a crazy irritable knee. Yeah. So maybe this is a good place to mention some of the symptom modification strategies that, that aren't, you know, strengthening, but um, and, and where they might fit into rehab. It so, definitely goes against our bias. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, our, our bias is to just, like, strengthen people and hope that fixes all the problems. But th there are some, there's some, some pretty compelling data on foot orthoses, mm -hmm. um, as well as, um, as taping for sh yeah. short-term pain relief. So, um, yeah, so foot, that's not really something that I've personally used in my practice, foot orthoses. But listening to Brad Neal, who's, like, a world-leading expert on PFP, um, talk about this his perspective was that's probably the lowest hanging fruit for any clinician to improve their outcomes with PFP is in the short term, does a foot orthosis, doesn't have to be custom, can just be off the shelf. Does it make a difference? If so, that's been shown to produce better outcomes than not doing it. Yeah. And if, if that allows you to do more in the way of active stuff and, and strengthening, then maybe that's just a, a, a the window of opportunity totally as, yeah and you know. and and i think with um with the orthoses as well like you don't have to think about you know living in those things 24 7 and um, putting them in your slippers for example but um the way that he framed it and is find those activities that they're having uh issues with right so if they're having their kneecap pain in when they're playing tennis, right? Maybe we can put those orthoses in their tennis shoes and then maybe forget about the, their walking shoes, right? So it's just yeah. like, um, make it specific to the event that it occurs. Um, however, you know, 
there are those people that have the, you know, the cinema sign, for example, and they're having the prolonged knee pain with everything, right? So um, the way that he framed it is, it's better than nothing, right? It's not going to trump exercise, but it is better than nothing. So let's, you know, start, uh, start a rehab process with at least something, right? Cause a little bit of change. And then that might be enough to get the ball rolling on some of those trickier patients that are a little bit apprehensive into getting into any sort of exercise approach. Yeah. And I think it's so important we keep an open mind with respect to some of that stuff, because when we look at the data on heel lifts for Achilles tendinopathy versus eccentric strengthening, there was a trial that came out, I think it was 2019 or 2020, which showed that it, 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 heel lifts did better Yeah. in, in, in terms yeah, yeah. of pain. And so, you know, if it's we, like, these it, are easy tools. They're right? easy tools. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, the, um, the bias towards strengthening and active interventions is a, is a reaction to physiotherapy being for many, many years, simply consisting of of passive stuff where you're on the table getting mm. pain relief modalities given to you but and but it's important not to completely discount things that can help people get out of a bit of suffering and, and mm. continue their activities the way that brad neal framed it was like tylenol for a headache you know if you take if you have a headache take some tylenol helps you get to sleep you wake up in the morning you don't have a headache you're not going to like take more tylenol you know so maybe if this intervention can help somebody acutely with pain, um, it's not clear. Like, I don't think we have good data to show that people become dependent on them mm -hmm. when their pain goes away. Um, it's a, it's a tricky conversation because I think that can happen and I've seen that happen. And it, yeah. And it has happened, right? Like anecdotally, like both of us have had experiences where the patient really starts to rely on those passive modalities, right? Yeah. I mean, I've had, I've had cases where, for back pain, for example, um, I do some act, like active release technique. I can't call it that because Cairo has copyrighted that term. <laughs> Soft tissue release with active movement on the hat. We're, we're going to have to scratch that. We're going to have to scratch, <laughs> edit that out. Um, no, but you know, use some soft tissue and then you also give them some movement strategies and they come back. They're like, I need more of that soft tissue. Like that's what got me better, mm -hmm. you know? And then for months they're like, they just want soft tissue where you're like, I could be spending this time so much better, but because I opened the door to doing that manual technique, now the door is, uh, you know, it's glued to the wall. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, this is like why communication is so important, right? Like set your expectations. Like don't, don't make them reliant on these things. Like a really bad way to apply tape is to say that you're changing the structure of their kneecap right and and, yeah. and gliding it into a certain direction when we know that that is not the case yeah a trial out there that showed that doing a lateral glide of the patella actually induced more pain relief than a medial glide <laughs> which which completely flies in the face of the yeah. biomechanical paradigm that the lateralization of the patella and the increased pressure on the lateral pole is mm -hmm. what causes pain so it, it seems yeah. like within this last year of like diving into a little bit more of the detail, some of the stuff that we don't really talk about when we're in physio school is that, you know, things are a little bit more simpler than they actually, than they actually seem to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't, you know, make things as simple as they need to be, but no simpler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, if you're, if you're thinking, if you're overthinking about, you know, the way that you're going to glide something or, and if you're, if you're stressing out before you're putting on that tape application, you should probably rethink about you know, your overall narrative around why you're using that modality. Yeah, that's what we would call majoring in the minors. <laughs> um, so is it worth circling back to 
exercise variations to train. I have a few more that I'd like to mention. Maybe, yeah, totally. To train the quads. Um, one thing that I'm privileged to have access to at the clinic where I work is a sled. And if you have something that can mimic that, a reverse sled drag, I've found to be really well tolerated by knees that don't like deep flexion because somebody's basically holding a TRX straps, which are pulling the sled. And they're working within that maybe 30 degrees of flexion or even like 20 if they take really small steps into that terminal extension. And their quads, you can get their, a crazy stimulus into their quads without irritating the, the patellofemoral joint. So that's that's a favorite for me. And yeah. I, man, I, I surprise people. I'm like session two. We're pulling a sled and then they, they get a sweat. Yeah. And, then, and when you think about the psychological consequences of having this disabling pain, I think that has a myriad of benefits just in terms of confidence and keeping somebody feeling like they, um, you know, they're an active person. And yeah. So if I could choose between a sled pull and like a quarter squat, you know, they're both beneficial, but maybe you tailor that intervention based on who's the client in front of you. Are they somebody who really value identifies as an exerciser? Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. so, like we can give them something that makes them feel strong. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and, it, and again, like thinking about mechanism, it, it kind of goes into that Spanish squat kind of wall sit, like family of, of, of like the movement that you're in, like with an upright trunk. Yeah. So it tends to work really well in those early situations. And that's why like, you know, exercise progression can make a lot of sense when you have some of those like nice principles right at the start of your, of your program. Yeah. And then the other point that I would make to new grads and speaking to myself in the past here is to really recognize the importance of making micro progressions. So it doesn't need to be a new exercise every week. It can just be literally increasing the volume by two repetitions. Like that can be success. Like if you yeah. find, and I think often we, we overcomplicate things by picking too broad of an array of exercises. Like, okay, you're going to be doing reverse Nordics and split squats and step downs and bilateral squats and sled yeah. drags. Whereas you could take two of those and then over time progress that in terms of volume, intensity, um, angle of the shin, all these things which mediate patellofemoral and, and, and joint stress. And, and I think if we manipulate too many of those variables at once, it's hard to, to track where we're at. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think overall, it's it, like for your own framework, it's a little bit easier to track change. And for the patient, when they're seeing the continuity between exercises as opposed to throwing them into um, a new exercise every time that you see them, they can see like, damn, I'm actually changing. Like I'm actually seeing like this is easier than it was a month ago. Yeah. Right? Like I was not able to step up at this height. Um and, and it's and it's really empowering for the individual. And maybe a patient doesn't have like I mean, obviously often a patient doesn't have the technical knowledge yeah. to understand what the difference is in difficulty between, you know, a front foot elevated split squat and a lateral step down. So if you give them those two different variations and they do really well on one, how are we kind of making an equivalency there? Yeah. Like comparing the two, that might have not have the same effect as if you just like crush step downs and they can do more mm -hmm. of those, they're like, wow, like I'm making progress, like you said. Yeah, and then I think um, going to Rich Willie's point about the passive treatments, like the orthotics and the taping, right? Like uh, some of his beef, uh, some of his beef with um, with those treatments is that it can take time away from the exercise program, and 
for example, like when we are, like we are exercising with these patients, right? But if every single time that you're with this patient, you're switching things up and you have to reteach them how to do five new things, you're taking time away from the things that they could be getting better at that you've already showed them, right? Yeah. So it's just, again, going back to that value-based care. Totally. Yeah. And this is why, you know, if I'm short on time, I'm not, I'm probably not teaching somebody a single leg RDL if they're an untrained person. Yeah. I'm probably going to do like (laughs) any sort of hip engine. Well, (laughs) listen, like it it can take like 10 minutes to teach. This is where like from the strength coach perspective, if I have the choice between like a loaded jump and a, a clean loaded jump wins 10 out of 10 times because it takes like two seconds to teach mm-hmm. and gets you all the same benefits as a, a, a Olympic lift, which is super technical and hard to teach and has all these other elements to it, which are no, you irrelevant. Read, you spend an entire it. session, right? On, on one exercise. Yeah. And you got to ask yourself like, is are okay. Is, is this exercise giving me the biomotor qualities I'm trying to develop? What are those biomotor qualities? And is there maybe a, a trade-off between the skill acquisition required for the exercise and the strength and this is where like an open kinetic chain knee extension like rich willie has said it a lot of people are kind of on this train of thought now is the most functional exercise for the quads because what are we trying to do we're trying to force the quads to produce force right and so if i put somebody in a squat the body is really good at shifting stress to the hips in in ways that are even Uh, some research has shown not detectable like Mm -hmm. observationally and so we want to put if we want to shift stress somewhere we need to constrain the movement so they have no option but to complete the task yeah by by the means we want to yeah isolation exercises have value right and and i think um you know we see it in our gyms We, we we see those exercises and then I think even going through physio school is kind of funny. Like I was straying away from those exercises because I wanted to be more functional. I wanted to have bigger movements, sexier looking exercises, look good on the gram, yeah. <laughs> right? But then there's just like, there's value in just training hamstring strength in a, in a, in a prone, like a knee flexion, right? Like those those simple things. Yeah, like we, we both recently got a gym membership at a local kind of like, not a big box gym, but a gym with machines, and it's so refreshing it's so refreshing because like yeah. you know when all you have is free weights and, and barbells and stuff it's so hard to isolate certain areas if you just want like a pump of the hamstrings or like sh- you know the chest yeah man i love a, pr- a prone hamstring curl like yeah, if, if, yeah, if yeah. The, the issue in a physio setting is that it's not feasible to have all that equipment because it's only reasonable for one exercise so it probably doesn't make sense just logistically to have all that stuff if mm-hmm. you know because it's going to be like you're not going to be using it all the time and yeah. you don't have unlimited space yeah and it's probably trickier for those clinics that um you know have been around for 20 30 years that have been treating more in a passive approach where you're coming in and your physio is your mechanic right you're getting your little tune-up but then i i see a couple of like physio clinics that are kind of changing their philosophies and like driving a little bit more activity and and it can be tricky like when you've set your clinic up in this set way like how are you supposed to fit in like a leg extension machine a calf raise machine right like it makes more sense to have this little bit open space but you see like you know places like um like pulse in peterborough you know like the 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 movement in in dundas right like these clinics that umana right like we, we we have this like established gym space it can make it a little bit easier to you know modify as the years go on you know just maybe move move a little area to, to, to assign like a new, a new machine, for example. 
Totally. Yeah. And I'd say it's, it's worth it. Um, you know, when, when we're thinking about something like the, like how to isolate the soleus, like how many runners do you see? Right. What's a big foundational principle of treating of strength training with runners? We know the soleus does damn calves. The calves calves are the workhorse. Like, you know, they they do the most work. So if you're trying to train soleus with like a bent knee standing calf raise, you're gonna be you're gonna be bottlenecked by how much weight you can carry in your hands before your soleus get fatigued. So just like this seated calf raise machine. Yeah. Um It, it is interesting to see like how much better you can feel too. Like when you've you know, you've gone from this kind of like functional training uh, for so long, and then you've added some some bit of like isolation work in, in your in your routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's underrated in my opinion. Um, okay, what else do you want to cover? Is there any else anything else in terms of exercises that you think would be worth bringing up? I know it kind of feels like we're diving too much into the weeds when we go through that stuff, but for new grads, I think it. Can, can yeah. Uh, yeah. We we, tr- we tried to create this 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 episode um, to be practical, right? Like we're not the experts, but at least if we can provide some tools and tips and tricks, then then you know it might be useful for someone else. So yeah, I just tell people like this is what we actually do. Yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah. this is what we've been doing with clients. It you know <laughs> we're, we we struggle just like everybody else and no two people with PFP are the same just like any MSK condition. Yeah. But I think you need these kind of big rocks of treatment to to you know fill your bucket first, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. So over over the last like week or so uh, since we've uh, dove into this topic, what would you say your takeaways are? Just to kind of like wrap things up. Yeah, so one of the big takeaways, I think, is that treatment needs to be, I mean, that, that Venn diagram is a big one. The, we need, we, we want to pick interventions that are, that are supported by literature, but we want to also weight what we actually see with the client, and then we want to look at biological plausibility. That framework, I think if I get lost and I'm thinking, am I, if, am I doing something that's worthwhile here, can I tie, can I get an overlapping region there with at least two circles? Um, that can be helpful. I think the other thing I've taken away is just that it's really important to have that conversation on day one about prognosis being not so great. Um, like I, you come out so optimistic as a physio student and, um, I remember having conversations with clients early on where I set their expectations way too high. And it only leads to issues. You know, if you can over-deliver relative to expectations, that's a lot better than under-delivering. And knowing the stats on prognosis is so critical. Yeah. You know, th- those are the things in presentations in physio school that you just ignore. Because you're like, <laughs> doesn't matter. Like, that's just boring, like, introduction material. Yeah, totally. Like, and get get like, me the special test. Give me the special test, man. Like, yeah. I would, yeah. Like, let's, let's grind some patellas. Where's Clark oh, at? Oh, my gosh. Um, anyways, <laughs> you know, it, just those basics, what, what to expect is, yeah. is so critical. Yeah. And uh, I hate to do this because uh, I, I feel like, once the uh, BPS kind of model, you know, the all the psychological factors, all the social factors, like thinking about pain is more of a complex experience. It's always brushed off right to the end. <laughs> I feel like we're doing that right here, right now. Yeah. Um, but but like I would say to anyone treating this condition, and I think just in general, like pain is complex, and if you can address some of those bigger pillars that we were talking about, that might make a difference. You know, that might make a meaningful difference in that person's life. 
that they might think about, you know, 10 years down the line. They might not remember that exercise progression that you gave them, but if you if you gave them some tips and tricks around um, recovery, around like load tolerance, around like maybe some sleeping effects, you know, like quick little tips and tricks, like you'd be surprised what sticks. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And maybe the magic of clinical practice is being able to zoom out when appropriate and zoom in when appropriate. Yep. And be a bit myopic on biomechanics for 30 seconds and then zoom out and account for these other really important broad factors which we know impact recovery. So, um, yeah, I think that does it for me, if it does it for you. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Paradox PT Podcast. If you have any comments or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. The best way to get in touch with us is on Instagram. Adrian can be found at at commoncuriosity.pt and I can be found at at leo.physio. We'd also really appreciate it if you gave us a follow and a like on whatever podcast app you use so you get notified about future episodes as we release them. Once again, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.